0: everyone, welcome back to Talking Tutors, episode 167. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talkingtudors for more information. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll have access to patron-only monthly giveaways. July's Prize is a two-volume book set which explores representations of Mary the First in writing, in literature, and other textual sources. A huge thank you to Dr. Valerie Schutte for sponsoring this fabulous prize. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors Live Talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. On the weekend of the 30th and 31st of July, I'll be speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Norton about her book, The Temptation of Elizabeth Tudor, and the distressing events that took place when the young Elizabeth went to live with the newlyweds, Catherine Parr and Thomas Seymour. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to discuss Elizabeth I and her circle is Professor Susan Doran. Susan Doran is Professor of Early Modern British History at the University of Oxford and a Senior Research Fellow at Jesus College and St. Bennet's Hall, Oxford. She has written numerous books on the Tudors most recently Elizabeth I and Her Circle, and edited four catalogues for major exhibitions in London, most recently Elizabeth I and Mary Queen of Scots. She's now finishing a new book, Regime Change, 1603-1612. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tutors, Susan. How are you?
1: I'm pretty good, enjoying the sunny weather in England.
0: Yes, I know. Very lucky. I'm chilly and wrapped up here, as you can see. So please introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Okay. Um, well, I went to Oxford University as an undergraduate, first of my generation to do so, which was probably true of many people of my generation. I'm married with two children, adult children, and one of them is a, is a writer. Of film and TV, and the other one does IT. So I worked all the way through my children's childhood, and I have been in Oxford University teaching there for the last twenty years, and I've pretty much devoted my life to the Tudors.
0: Absolutely, which is why it's such an honour to have you on the show today, Susan. So you've written extensively on the on the Tudors, including books and essays on Elizabeth I. So what makes her such a fascinating subject?
1: Well, to be honest, I didn't come to start writing about her because it was her personality that attracted me. I was interested in the period. I had been inspired by a particular book by the American Lawrence Stone, which was a holistic view of the Elizabethan aristocracy. And so I decided to do my doctoral thesis on a, an Elizabethan nobleman. And it was from there that I was drawn in to Elizabeth I. And I think I was interested in her, partly because of the myths surrounding her, some of which I disagreed with, and I'm sure we'll talk about that afterward. But also because, you know, how could I not be interested in someone who was a woman ruler, which was very unusual, uh, not Just not just then, but also when I was actually writing uh, my thesis. So I found myself attracted to her and becoming attracted to the portraits of her. That was another way that I was drawn in to the character and the personality of Elizabeth.
0: Absolutely. We've been talking a little bit on my blog and on social media about what is it about the Tudors? And so often people do say the portraiture, that really rich visual record that we have of the period, I think is is very helpful. In 2015, one of your books was published and that was Elizabeth I and Her Circle. So we're going to talk a little bit about some of those key figures that you cover in that particular book. So what was Elizabeth's relationship with her siblings like? Maybe we'll start there.
1: Okay, well, let's start with Edward. Um, obviously, he was younger than her. There was no family tensions because his mother, although she may have had an influence on Henry VIII in the execution of Elizabeth's mother, there was no sort of direct personal tension over that issue. And they had a lot in common, most notably their intellectual interests and their religion. Both were Protestants. Elizabeth probably less Taliban-style Protestantism than than her brother or half-brother. But he recognised that she shared his religion. The problem, though, um, I think, for Edward was that she was an unmarried woman. She was young, unmarried, and there was always a danger, he thought, that she might be attracted to or be persuaded to marry. A Catholic, and it was for that reason, as well as others, that he basically disinherited her, uh, along with Mary, and instead chose to have Lady Jane Grey, who he knew was to marry, and indeed did marry, an English Protestant. So, yeah, their relationship was was good for most of the time that Edward was on the throne but he began to be separated from her as well I think deliberately by the Duke of Northumberland who was his chief minister during his last illness and Elizabeth wrote and complained that she wasn't able to see him and it was I think all part of that decision that he made as well as Northumberland that she shouldn't take the throne but of course Mary took the throne another half sibling and Elizabeth's relationship with Mary was was far more tense far more personal and most obviously they were at loggerheads over religion so Elizabeth we don't think of as being a fervent Protestant in the way that Edward was but nevertheless she was not a Catholic and she was brought up probably by a Lutheran chaplain And she couldn't really go along with the mass and with Rome. But Mary, once she was on the throne, forced her to. And Mary knew very well because Elizabeth made it obvious that this was not something that Elizabeth was doing by choice. So the tensions were there, personal, religious. And then they became political because Elizabeth was seen very early on in the reign as a focus for a rebellion, white rebellion. And it was that that led Mary to first put her in the tower and then under house arrest. And finally, when they couldn't find enough evidence to enable Mary either to execute her or keep her as a permanent prisoner, Elizabeth was allowed to be in the custody of various people for a time, be separated from from some of her women for a time, but to live outside London. There was no love lost between the two sisters, and it grew worse, I think, as time went by, and Mary would have liked to have disinherited her. But Elizabeth had too many supporters. She had some powerful relatives, not just on her father's side, but on her mother's side. There was a whole Howard family, and some of those were in Mary's government, and they were not going to see Elizabeth disinherited. And then there would be the problem if Elizabeth didn't succeed to the throne, who would? And there was the fear of civil war, foreign intervention. And that's what really saved Elizabeth. I think Mary would have been perfectly happy for Elizabeth not just to have uh, not taken the throne, but also either been imprisoned permanently or more likely even executed.
0: You mentioned some of her relatives, the Howards and the Berlin relatives as well. Can you tell us a little bit about how Elizabeth actually treated her Berlin cousins and, and relatives and what sort of positions did they end up holding at, at her court?
1: I think this is very much a sign of how Elizabeth viewed her mother because she brought in her Berlin relatives, both male and female, into positions within her government and her household. So if we take some of the women, she was very close to Mary Boleyn, her aunt and Boleyn's sister. She was very close to the daughter of Mary Boleyn, Catherine. And when Catherine went into exile during Mary's reign because of her religion, her Protestant religion, she went with her husband, Francis Knowles. Elizabeth wrote her a letter and at the end it said, Corrotto, broken heart. And that was a sign of, I think the love really, uh, that she had for Catherine. Catherine um, was then brought in to Elizabeth's privy chamber when Elizabeth became queen. she became the lady of the bedchamber, prime position. And Elizabeth wanted her with her all the time, to the extent that it placed a huge burden on Catherine because she was pregnant so many times. She had a lot of children and she wasn't really given the chance to recover. She had to keep coming back uh, and working for Elizabeth. And when she was ill, um, Elizabeth would would not allow her husband, who was on an assignment for Elizabeth, to come and, and look after or see Uh, Catherine and it was a great sadness to both her husband and to Elizabeth afterwards when Catherine died without seeing her husband so we get a sense there of the the depths of affection Elizabeth could have but it was very much um, one might say narcissistic it was it was very much about her and her needs Um, and sometimes that that worked against the women uh, that she was most fond of. Another woman that Elizabeth really cared for, the Boleyn relation, was the the daughter of Lord Hunsdon, who was the son of Mary Boleyn. She was also called Catherine. One of the big problems of this period is that so many people were either called Elizabeth, Catherine or Mary. So we have to find it quite difficult to distinguish uh, between them all. But this Catherine, who married Charles Howard, Howard of Effingham, who later became the Earl of Nottingham, was again very, very close to Elizabeth, brought in, younger than Elizabeth, brought into Elizabeth's privy chamber. She was a gentlewoman of the privy chamber. She looked after the Queen's jewels. She was a carver. She was one of the women who tasted uh, Elizabeth's food first to make sure it wasn't poisoned. And when she died, which was very she, at the beginning of 1603, Elizabeth was devastated. And it was said it was one of the main causes of a melancholy that Elizabeth fell into shortly before, before her death. And of course, Catherine was one of the, the very few who had Elizabeth had known. Uh, when she was young, who survived. I think that's one of the problems older people have, that that, their relations and friends die off. And Elizabeth was in that position. And possibly that explains the melancholy. But Lord Hunston did very well. He was, as I said, the son of of Mary and he entered Elizabeth's household during uh, Mary's first reign and he very soon was given positions in first of all Elizabeth's household then he was given uh, military positions he was the governor of Berwick he was warden of the east marches responsible for security on the border between Scotland and England and then He, in 1577, was brought to the centre of power. One of the, the other themes, I think, that's sometimes forgotten in terms of those people who were raised to positions under Elizabeth is that the majority had to do an apprenticeship. First, They had to show their competence, they had to show their loyalty, and then they were raised. So even though Elizabeth was exceptionally fond of Hunsdon, gave him lands, gave him the barony, that's why he was Baron Hunsdon, she didn't bring him into the Privy Council until 1577, that's almost 20 years after he was made. She was made Queen. And he was afterwards made Lord Chamberlain. And, you know, he would never have reached that position. He was competent, but he wouldn't have reached that position were it not for that Berlin connection. And there are others too. There's the Sackles who were cousins. and Both of them were brought into Elizabeth's government. So the Berlin's did very well, both as women who were in the Privy Chamber. I haven't mentioned Philadelphia. They were all the daughters of the Catharids. They were all part of that coterie, of Boleyns who were close to Elizabeth. We tend to think of Elizabeth's kin as being Mary Queen of Scots, and that's it. And we must not forget this other side. And as I say, I think it does show a respect that Elizabeth had for her mother. Didn't show it in many ways. You know, there was no act of Parliament saying that Mm. Anne Boleyn was, was not guilty of adultery and incest, but she showed by the way that she treated Anne's relations, as, as, as well as other small indications that her mother was a person of status who should not earn disrespect.
0: Yes, I love learning about the subtle ways in which she she did that, she, you know, honoured her mother's memory. It's quite lovely. Um, so you've talked about some of the women that served in her privy chamber. What were their, their day-to-day activities and responsibilities as one of either a lady of the privy chamber, a lady-in-waiting? And were they paid, Susan, for this work?
1: Right. Well, there were there were three or maybe four categories of women. There was the women of the bedchamber. There were about four of them. And they were responsible for what we would think of as Elizabeth's bodily functions. You know, she had to go to the toilet uh, and they would be the women who, who washed her, dealt with her toilet, dealt with. Her menstrual cycle. They—they they were the ones who were very high status. I mean, this was not something you—you you gave to the kitchen scullery mate. This was something that only a woman of high status would be allowed. To, to be near and become so intimate that she could deal with these kind of bodily functions. And of course, they had other functions as well. For example, they would sleep, one of them would sleep with Elizabeth and act as a chaperone and they would entertain her as well. They did receive salary, very small salary, a salary of what today we would call 33 pounds, eight shillings, and six shillings and eight pence. And it's because it's based on 50 marks, which even in those days was not, was not much. But they would get their board and lodging It wasn't so much the money that made it um, a job that they wanted. It was the high status, the possible influence that they would have in being intimate with the Queen. So there was no shortage of women, despite the fact they weren't properly paid, um, who wanted to do that. And then there were the ladies of the Privy Chamber. A bit lower down, but nevertheless, very high status women. And they would be entrusted with the Queen's jewellery, her wardrobe. They would entertain her as well, sit with her in the Privy Chamber when she was having more private moments. Again, they would operate as chaperones. Elizabeth was never left alone. If she was talking to one of her male courtiers, perhaps in the Privy Garden, they would be behind her. Uh, and and so that, that you know could see no hanky panky was going on, and that was important because she had to keep her reputation. Then there were maids of honor who would be young young women who were mainly decorative. It was again it was a kind of apprenticeship. They would be there if they didn't marry, then they would move on uh, and possibly become ladies of the bedchamber. Or even if they did marry, they might stay on. As that. And then there were the chambers, who were probably low, lowest down in terms of the status. And they they had the sort of clearing up the plates type jobs. Still high status. They were given the same sort of a lower salary. They wore liveries to show that they were the queen's servants. So as everything in Elizabethan society, it was very hierarchical. But again, as everything is obvious in royalty at this time, women of very high status, and men of very high status, were prepared and were keen to do tasks that we today would think of as, give that to, you know. <laughs> let's bring in the servants or if you have servants or or you know people who who were were seen of, of lower status but that didn't happen with royalty those people who were of low status would not really be seen in the upper part of the court they would be in the kitchens they're all below so you you know this is where you get this the whole notion of below and, and upper visually in the royal palaces and, and country houses.
0: Wonderful. And and tell us a little bit about the Queen's interactions with the men at her court. This is always an interesting subject, I think. Who did she favour and, and why? And obviously this changes during the course of her reign, but who were some of the favourites?
1: Well, I think one of the myths about Elizabeth is that somehow she raised unworthy men uh, because they were good looking or because they were good horsemen, or because they danced well. People said of Christopher Hatton that he danced his way into the Lord Chancellorship, and this, I think, is extremely unfair. Of course, you know, she wanted people around her who were attractive. It wasn't just that that created a personal dynamic, which, you know, I'm not denying that it probably did, but also because the court was display, you know, you needed to have It's like Hollywood, you know, you don't really very often see unattractive people, perhaps more so now than you would have done in the past, because there's an image. And so, yes, she did tend to go for attractive men, physically attractive men. Men, one has to say, who quite obviously were witty and had conversational talents. Again, you know, part of their role is to entertain her as well as to be on display. What sort of men are we talking about? Well, I've mentioned Christopher Hatton, but of course, the most famous one is Robert Dudley, later, quite soon actually, to become Earl of Leicester. And there, there does seem to have been a romantic attachment. They knew each other, probably in Edward's reign, though in passing, possibly still more in Mary's reign, I think very likely more in in Mary's reign. And then he was appointed master of the horse, the Dudleys, had been master of the horse. So it it, it was almost a hereditary appointment, not just one that because, you know, she thought he was nice to have around. And that meant he had a lot of interaction with her as master of the horse, even physical, because he would help lift her onto the horse. So, you know, there was the opportunity there for something more to develop. And I'm convinced something more did develop. I'm convinced she wanted to marry him. And were it not for the scandal surrounding his wife's death, which is still unexplained, I think she she might have done so. Uh, but there was so much opposition to it. And there was the problem that rumours were that he had murdered his wife and she couldn't risk her imposition by doing that. So he was actually also quite competent. I mean, it wasn't just that he was a pretty face and athletic. He demonstrated that he had interests in religion, in intellectual matters. But I think he he entertained her as well. I, I think there was th- that side of it. He was her sort of fun friend.
0: Susan, tell us about some of Elizabeth's most trusted men on the Privy Council.
1: Well, the most trusted man, as most people know, is William Cecil, Lord Burleigh, And he had worked for Elizabeth way back in Edward's reign. He'd been in charge of her estates. They had obviously discussed what was going to happen uh, during Mary's reign when Elizabeth would become queen, as both expected and, and would, was, were prepared to fight for, if necessary. And right from the First, she made clear that he was to be her, what we would think of as Secretary of State, the Principal Secretary it was called then, and that she had great trust in him. And they worked very, very closely together. They had disagreements. They disagreed about Mary, Queen of Scots. They disagreed about the very harsh line Elizabeth was prepared to take to Protestants who disagreed with the the religious settlement. But there were other things that they were very close on. They were very close on foreign policy, for example. They did a wonderful double act together. They still discussions about whether or not Elizabeth just followed blindly what Burley wanted, whether Burley was the one who wrote the letters that were signed by Elizabeth. My own view is that Elizabeth was always the one in charge (laughs) and uh, Burley was her servant and that uh, she made it very clear when she disagreed with him and she would sometimes haul him over the coals when he tried to take an independent line. So he's the most important. The other famous one, of course, is Sir Francis Walsingham, largely because of his role in bringing down Mary, Queen of Scots. I don't think Elizabeth liked. Francis Wilsingham. She found him useful. I don't think that there was anything like that kind of trust and affection. She disagreed with him on so many issues. It's a wonder that he really kept a post. And it's, I suppose, it's a sign that again, how Elizabeth valued competence and recognised his great loyalty to her and to the state. And so he did keep his position, even though she knew he was trying to catch out Mary Queen of Scots, which she would have preferred not to have been caught out. Uh, She knew that he favoured alliances with Protestants overseas that she wanted to just keep a bit at distance. And she knew that he was prepared to support and, and aid Those Protestants, the Puritans, who disagreed with the the prayer book, wanted to change the prayer book. So, despite those disagreements, he stayed in the Privy Council. And again, what we see here is tremendous stability and loyalty under Elizabeth. If you compare or rather contrast her with her father, Henry VIII, who, you know, this person goes, that person loses his head. Uh, that person's locked in jail. That's not Elizabeth stire And she wants stability. She wants men, even if they disagree with her. She wants to hear their views you know, and make her own decision. And I think Walsingham is a very good example of that. And then, of course, there's Robert Dudley, who becomes a privy councillor, and he is for a long time still trying to get Elizabeth to accept his hand in marriage. And then I think he starts to shift and wants to become a military leader on the continent and is pushing and pushing Elizabeth to intervene in the, the war that's taking place between Dutch rebels and the King of Spain, and he wants to lead the Dutch rebels Protestant crusade against Spain. And Elizabeth holds it off and holds it off until she can't do it any longer. And then he does go over to the Netherlands, a bit too old by that stick, and act as the military leader there.
0: So Susan, she's constantly surrounded by these men and women, obviously trying to show their loyalty, demonstrate their loyalty to the Queen. What are the, some, some of the ways in which the men showed their loyalty to Elizabeth?
1: I think there's a lot about visuals. You probably we talked about the portrait. Noticed in a fair number of them that men, even like Francis Walsingham, are wearing a miniature of the queen, and these miniatures are very often. Given by Elizabeth, but they put them on display. And of course, they have portraits of the Queen in their home. Some of them entertain the Queen when she goes on royal progress and they try and outdo each other in presenting sumptuous banquets and great entertainments, and the you know, the best poets and dramatists to do their stuff uh, to entertain the queen watches in their houses. So that's all all about display. And another is that the gift offerings they gave to the Queen, talked about her giving miniatures to them, which they display. But every New Year's day, there would be a formal gift exchange between Elizabeth and her household servants and her courtiers. And they would again, try and outdo each other with with the uh, the tokens, the inventiveness, which he loved, of the, the jewels that they would give her. Very often it, it was jewels. And then there would be the writing of poetry. Walter Raleigh is a, a very keen poet, um, but he's certainly not the only one. And these would be very often panegyrics to the Queen. So there were all sorts of different ways that they could display their loyalty the only way that they could really show their loyalty was doing what Elizabeth wanted them to do and not plotting and the majority Mm -hmm. of them did do that though there were others who who unfortunately for them uh like the Duke of Norfolk did not and they suffered the consequences
0: yes and you talked a little bit there about the the gift exchange and the gift giving and are there other ways in which Elizabeth used patronage to keep her courtiers you know in check
1: think Elizabeth uses patronage to keep her her courtiers in check. I think she uses it to reward them. So it's when they have shown loyalty that they get the jobs, they get the estates. In fact, one of the criticisms you could make of Elizabeth is that she takes away patronage from some of those who are on the edge of disloyalty, uh, such as the Northumberland and Westmoreland in the north, and she takes away some of their positions. And, and they're the ones, of course, who rebel in the northern rising. So one could argue that might be one of Elizabeth's weaknesses. People have to display loyalty before they get the goods.
0: And you have been studying this period for for quite a long time. So what are some of those popular myths about Elizabeth that you've come across and that you've also tried to challenge in your work?
1: Well, we've talked about her relationship with her women at the Privy Chamber. And one of the things that I keep trying to do is to puncture this idea that Elizabeth is spiteful and jealous of them. I have argued that when Elizabeth does punish them in, in a variety of ways, it's because they have shown disloyalty to her. We've talked about how she, she values loyalty. So and I think the word spiteful, as I've said elsewhere, is very much a gender term. And I'm concerned about some of the gendered language that is used about Elizabeth. So another gender piece is a language is, is that she vacillates or, or, she's, or she's hesitant and she can't make up her mind. Whereas I think if she was a man male ruler they'd talk about her as being circumspect I, and yes. flexible so are yeah. some of the things that bothered me but on the bigger scale one of the works that i wrote um was about it was called monarchy and matrimony and the key argument there or two key arguments one was that elizabeth did not decide to become a virgin queen Early on in the reign. She didn't decide for reasons associated with her gender that she could not marry. And I try to show that on at least two occasions, Elizabeth seemed to want to marry, strong evidence. We've talked about Dudley, but there was also the Duke of Anjou, Francis Duke of Anjou, and that um there were very good political reasons why in the end, those marriages could not go ahead. And that in some other cases, she used marriage not as a diplomatic tool, I don't think, but quite seriously thought about them to build up alliances. So that's, I think, one of the myths that I was very concerned I didn't start off with the idea of puncturing the myth. I started off with the idea well, let's find out a bit more about these matrimonial negotiations. But that's what I, I argued, and I, I still hold to that. And linked to that is this notion of, well, when did Elizabeth become the Virgin Cree? And I argue, and, and others follow me, or, or at least at the same time came to the same conclusion, that it's really quite late in the reign. It's in the late 1570s. That you start seeing the emergence of Elizabeth as as a virgin queen, and that that virginity is not associated with the Mary, mother of Christ. It's not the Madonna uh, that is the iconography, and that there's been, I think, um, a too narrow interpretation of the iconography of Elizabeth. So, there are two of the important things I would argue. That she was not, I suppose, this links in with her relationship with with her women. she was not spiteful to Mary Queen of Scots, that there were very good reasons for her treatment of Mary Queen of Scots, and that she was the protector of Mary, not the woman who was plotting her downfall. And that we can also see, that in the succession, you know, she's often criticised for not naming her successor. And the argument is that she didn't name her successor because she, you know, didn't want to think about her own death or that the successor might be someone who would displace her. And what I go on to argue is that actually, if you look at those people who were, being suggested as the next as the next queen or king even there were problems associated with them all that she was really aware of so what we're looking at is a political very strong political decision that's not just one that is associated with her own personal security
0: so a final question for you susan about elizabeth what did you learn about elizabeth the woman uh, while you were looking closely at these relationships and interactions
1: first of all i think A lot of historians say you can never get to know Elizabeth because Elizabeth is so aware of image all the time. She is performing all the time. So it's very hard to get underneath the real Elizabeth. But I do think there are times that you can see the real Elizabeth. And I've mentioned some of them. I think that there there are some true friendships that she has, that you see her building up really strong relationships, the great loyalty that she displays that she is someone who can fall into rage really quite easily, like her like her father. And of course, I'm not the only one to say that. And then it can go. It, it usually dissipates quite quickly. Not always, but it didn't when Mary Queen of Scots was executed. Uh, but there were good political reasons for that. And I suppose that's the other really important point about Elizabeth for me, is that she is a political animal. She learned to be very early early on in her life and it dominated her interactions and her writings and performances and that is I think the true Elizabeth Um, you know in some ways you can't distinguish between the personal and the political because she lived being that political animal.
0: Thank you so much for sharing your insights and your expertise with us. There is a final thing that we like to do on our episodes of Talking Tudors. And this is just what I call a quick game of 10 to go. So it's 10 questions just to get to know you, Susan, a little bit better. Okay. (laughs) What about the last book that you bought? I can see lots of books behind you.
1: Well, do you mean the last history book or do you mean the last... Any book, any book at all. Well, I, I use Kindle a great deal for novels. And the last book I bought and read was Tobin's book um, on Thomas Mann, the magician. I had gone to Lublin, Lubeck, sorry, very recently, which was the home of, of Thomas Mann. And I was reading Budenbrooks while I was there. And so I, I bought and thoroughly enjoyed the Tobin. Sort of, it's a strange book, really, because it's, it, it's a biography written as a novel. So it's an interesting genre. So yes, that was the last one.
0: Wonderful. And is there a new skill that you would like to learn?
1: Oh, I would like to be better at languages. I keep starting and stopping um, <laughs> languages. So yes, I would like to. I'm, in fact, thinking about going back to French, which I did at, uh, which I did at uh, A level at, at, at school. And obviously, I read French, but I would like to be able to talk it more yes. effectively. So I'm thinking of doing some French conversation classes.
0: Wonderful, that's wonderful. And do you have any pets?
1: Sadly, not. I did have a dog. And I would be really happy to have another dog, but my lifestyle does not not allow for that. But uh, yes, when I was little too, I used to have goldfish, but they tended to die too regularly for me to build up an attachment. That's
0: so true about goldfish,
1: sadly. And what's something you like
0: to do to unwind and
1: relax? I do a lot of Pilates. It's very important for me, stretching and Pilates. And I've now started to do some weights so I'm paying more attention to my (laughs) exercise but Pilates I go to for enjoyment not just uh, for health wonderful and the other thing I really love and which is very important to me is film I watch film a great deal I'm part of a a video group which uh, we watch a a film every month and then meet and talk about it so uh, that's also very relaxing
0: and what's a favorite holiday destination for you
1: Italy. No, I love Italy. I, I was in Florence for my gap year. And I I love Italian culture, Italian food, the Italian language, Italian art. <laughs> it just, I, Italy can't go wrong. Wonderful.
0: You mentioned a mystery earlier on, the one of Robert Dudley's wife. Is there any mystery? And it doesn't have to be a Tudor one. It could be any any period of history that you would love to be able to solve.
1: Wow, that's a a difficult one to, I mean, obviously, the the Dudley murder is a key one uh, that I'd love to solve. I'm going to pass on that one, I think. (laughs) That's okay.
0: Let's go with the Dudley one. (laughs) Um, And and then just to finish up, Susan, what's an event, an event that took place in the 16th century that you would like to just be sort of like bird's eye view, not involved, but just observing? Is there any one event that really captures your attention?
1: I would like to have been at the Kenilworth entertainments. I would have liked to, you know, we we interpret them as possibly a, a marriage proposal uh, by, uh, by Dudley. So I'd love to have seen the interactions between Dudley and, and Elizabeth. And I would have also enjoyed the fireworks so, yes. and the garden. So, yeah, that's where I would like to have been.
0: Wonderful. And just the last thing, I do tend to ask my guests for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something like a suggestion for our listeners, maybe to go and watch a film, to listen to a song, to read a book, something to nurture their love of Tudor history. So do you have a takeaway for us?
1: I have a genre uh, rather than a, yes. a, a particular book, and that are the catalogues of exhibitions. There's some wonderful exhibitions out there. I mean, obviously, I've done quite a lot of editing of catalogues, and I'm not just promoting my own. Uh, they're, they're very good. <laughs> but uh, there, are, there are many others. And the great thing about them is that they, they, they're so beautifully illustrated and provide a background both to the objects and to the period as a whole. I think it's a super way of, of getting to know more. Uh, and enjoying it.
0: That's fantastic. And in 160-plus episodes, no one's ever suggested that, so good on you, Susan. <laughs> so you. this brings us to the end of our episode. So thank you so much again for taking the time to come and talk Tudors with us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. the behind the scenes news you'll also find me on twitter my handle is on the Tudor trail and on instagram as the most happy 78. it's time now for us to re-enter the modern world as always i look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon